Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the HR Leaders Podcast, the show where we discuss the future of work with today's most innovative and successful people leaders. Uh, today, we have a special guest on the show. We're joined by Safi Bakal, who's a physicist, entrepreneur, and author of the book Loon Shots, How to Nurture the Crazy Ideas that Win Wars, Cure Diseases, and Transform Industries. Uh, Safi, welcome to the show. How are you? Thanks. Delighted to be here, Chris. Well, thanks for joining us. I feel like we've been talking forever now. <laughs> You're probably sick of me by now. We, we've, we've had a <laughs> lot of fun talks. I'm, really, I'm really looking forward to it. And I'm looking forward to it, as you know, because we talked about this before, but a lot of authors have somebody in mind when they're writing a book. And so when I was writing a book, the guy I had in mind was a guy named Art McMahon, who actually was my HR director when I was yeah. running a biotech company for 15 years. And he and I were very close. And I kept thinking, what would Art say? What would he think when I'm writing this stuff? What would he take away? And if something wouldn't have made sense to him, I'm like, well, let me rethink how I say that. So it's, I'm excited to talk to you because I know those are the kinds of guys that you talk to, C, you know, HR guys, CEOs, CFOs. And mm -hmm. uh, that's especially relevant for the kind of stuff that I do and I write about. Well, before we jump in, if people aren't aware of your, your work, tell us a little bit briefly about yourself, your background, and uh, your, your journey to, to where we are today with the, the book. About 18 years ago, 19 years ago, I started a biotech company to develop new drugs for treating cancer. And not long after I started that company, my father got uh, sick. I don't you know, I may not have even told you this story, but he got sick with a, a rare type of cancer. And I figured, well, now I'm in the field, I can, you know, do something about this. I have access to all the latest scientists, all the latest technology, all the latest experts, you know, and I went and got second, third, fourth, fifth opinions. But unfortunately, nothing, sadly, that I could do made any difference, even though I was in the field. And then over the years, as my company grew and went, we went public and so on, I kept seeing everywhere around me, large companies, small companies, really promising ideas buried in the basements of these organizations. And it wasn't about anything about the people. It wasn't, you know, these were bad people or it's some, everybody wants to do something that will solve a big problem, that will cure a terrible disease. Everybody has someone who's touched by that. There's some kind of mystery when people come together, the good teams with the best intentions and excellent people will kill great ideas. Why? Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what motivated me because I kept seeing all these things that could have helped my dad and other people that I met over the years with severe diseases, why do they get trapped in the basements? And if we could solve that puzzle, imagine the good we could do for the world. You know, how much we could help those teams and companies do what they want to do, which is bring out balance, doing a good job on their operations, on their day-to-day, -day, on their main business, but at the same time, being really good at growing the new. How do we balance the current and the new? Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of how I came to this. I was kind of inspired by some work I did with the president, with President Obama's Council of Science Advisors and how they solved this problem during World War II. Mm -hmm. And that kind of led to this book. Well, my next question was, what was the inspiration? But you kind of asked, answered that one <laughs> behind the book. And what, for, how, how do you describe, you know, what is a loon shot? We hear, we hear, we hear moonshot, right? We've, we've all heard of the going, you know, going for the moonshot. What's the difference between that and a, and a loon shot? Well, as you say, everybody knows what a moonshot is. A moonshot is this big goal, big destination. Let's put a man on the moon or let's you know, cure poverty. But how do we get there? And the reason I used a different word is because the, the big ideas, the ones that change the course of science or business or industry or transform companies, save companies, rarely arrive with blaring trumpets and red carpets, dazzling everybody with their brilliance. Usually they're written off for years, sometimes for decades, and they're champions are called crazy. 
And since there wasn't a good word in the English language for that, I made one up. Uh, w- w- one thing I love about the book more than anything is just the stories that you share. You must have had so much fun researching the book. Uh, you, yeah. you just asked me, even just that word, moonshots, that term started from uh, Kennedy and I, John, President John F. Kennedy when he declared to the U.S. Congress in 1961, we'd put a man in the moon. But what most people don't know is that 40 years earlier, a man named Robert Goddard suggested the ideas that might get us there, which is liquid-fueled jet propulsion. And when he suggested that idea, he was written off as crazy. The New York Times published an editorial that this guy doesn't understand the basic laws of physics. Hey, in space, there's nothing to push against. So obviously rockets don't work. Newton's laws of action and reaction. You know, fast forward, 14 years after his death, the day after the successful Apollo 11 launch to the moon, the New York Times issues a retraction. Apparently rocket flight does not violate 17th century (laughs) physics and quote, the Times regrets the error. Kind of the moral of that story, though, is that declaring moonshots and big goals is important, but nurturing moonshots is even more so. And that's kind of what this book is about. Can you share yeah, some of the other examples as well? Because you've got so many good oh, examples sure. in, for all in, of them. I'm so excited about them <laughs> to share them with everyone. We're, we're, this is what I do do when I get yeah, all these calls to come talk to these you know, leadership retreats and so on. So it, it, it's, uh, I tell the main idea, and I'll show you the main idea. And then I tell kind of the stories that help people really internalize it and get it uh-huh. and then walk away and then start doing these things. And I'll, then I'll, I'll give your audience three things to remember. The ice cube, the garden hoe, and the heart. And we'll explain over the course of the next 30 minutes what exactly that means. But let me start with, I said this is like a famous 100-year-old problem. Why do companies as they grow big grow stale? And it's not because any of the people, the CEOs are going up and the CFOs and like, what do you do? All of them want to innovate because they're, 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 their companies are at stake. They know mm-hmm. that if their competitor takes that next crazy idea and grows it, they can come back and like a bullet to the head and just take out the business. So how do you solve that problem of being both good at the current stuff and innovating the radical new? And so to answer that and give you a completely different answer, and I will give you that answer, (laughs) in order to do that, I'm going to need a prop. I'm not sure how many of your LinkedIn Live interviews use a prop, but I'm going to get one now. This is a glass of water. I can stick my finger in. And when I swish it around, all the molecules just swish around my finger. And that's always true for any liquid, except as I lower the temperature. Right at 32 Fahrenheit, all of a sudden, the behavior of those molecules completely changes. It becomes rigid as ice, and I can't stick my finger in. Why? Those molecules are exactly the same. So how did they know to suddenly completely change their behavior? There's no CEO molecule there with a bullhorn saying, oh, it's 33, everybody slosh around. No, wait a minute, it's 31, everybody line up totally rigidly. Oh, wait, it's 33 again. They just do it. There's no CEO molecule, there's no chief people officer. They just do it. Why? And so it's understanding the answer to that question that helped the Allies win the Second World War, that helped the U.S. in many ways lead the the world in science and technology ever since, and gives us a new way to think about what it means to be a better leader and manager. And now I'm going to drink my prop. <laughs> <laughs> you deserve it. You deserve it. <laughs> so let me, I can tell you kind of what's going on there. So the basic idea inside a glass of water, why do they suddenly change? Is because there's two forces. Every, that's called a phase transition in science. And every phase transition in science, you can understand in 90 seconds in this way. It's a tug of war between two forces. For example, in the glass of water, one of those things 
One of those forces is called entropy. And I'm going to bring this right back to teams and companies in a second. But I'm going to tell you, one of those things is called entropy, and it's just a fancy word that means want to run around and be free. And the other one of those forces is called binding energy. And again, that's just a fancy word. It means wants to lock every molecule rigidly in place, 2.8 angstroms, not 2.7 or 2.9 from the next one. And there's a tug of war between those two. And as I lower the temperature, all of a sudden, boom, at 32 Fahrenheit, the tug of war shifts sides. And it just flips. And the molecules line up totally rigidly. There's nothing about a CEO telling them to change their behavior. It's just the tug of war between those two forces. Now, whenever you organize people into a team or a company, you might say, well, what does that possibly have to do? Every team is different. All people are different. All companies are different. Well, you know what? All liquids are different. Water is different and carbon is different and methane is different and orange juice is different than grapefruit juice, but they all freeze. They all do that exact same behavior. Same with teams and companies. Whenever you bring people together into a group, you create two forces. One of them is stake and outcome. The other is perks of rank, stake and outcome and perks of rank. Imagine you have five people, you bring them together, let's say you form a biotech company to develop a new drug. Their stake and outcome is huge. Everybody owns, let's say, 20%. If that drug works, everyone's a hero and a millionaire for the rest of their life. And if it fails, everyone's unemployed looking for a job. Now, fast forward, let's, uh, you know, another company, let's just make up a name hypothetically, I don't know, Pfizer, 50,000 people. Let's say you bring them together. Well, what's my stake and outcome? Well, my stake and outcome is, you know, I make a good drug. It sells a few hundred million dollars, but revenue is $50 billion. So my stake and outcome is tiny. But well, what are perks of rank? Well, when I was a five-person company, the perks of rank, eh, you know, someone's a team member, someone's a team captain. It's nothing compared to that giant equity stake. But now at Pfizer, the perks of rank are huge. You could get promoted. You could make 50000 you know, an extra 50000 a year, extra 100000 a year. But your equity stake is almost nothing. So, boom, something suddenly shifts. And that's the balance between these two forces. So, the big problem there. The bigger problem, the big problem is what can you do about that? Because the system can't be in two phases at the same water can't be liquid and solid. You know, actually one time I asked this and somebody said, Well, what about a Slurpee? <laughs> yeah, that's a good that's record, a- <laughs> you know, yeah. just for the record, a Slurpee is a liquid, a disgusting sugary liquid, in which are suspended particles of ice. And if you wait three minutes, it will all be disgusting sugary liquid. So yeah. I don't mean something that's in the middle changing. I mean, sustainably, in equilibrium, how do you do both? And yeah. the reason that stuff is interesting is because once you understand the stuff at work, these forces at work, you can begin to control it. You can begin to manage it with your teams and companies. So, for example, when it snows at night, what do you sprinkle on your sidewalk? Salt. Why? Because it makes the molecules a little bit less sticky. It makes them less likely to go bind, which means that when you step on your sidewalk, you might wet your shoe in a puddle, but at least you're not slipping on a block of ice and ending up in the hospital. So it says little things, those little things that you can control that affect the temperature, that affect where and when a company. And the behavior in the company that we're talking about is the shift from embracing wild new ideas, this kind of fluid state, to rigidly rejecting them. Mm-hmm. And that's the balance between politics, you know, perks of rank, versus projects, which is rewarding people, celebrating results rather than rank. And so once you understand those two things, it gives you a whole new way of thinking about 
leadership and management and what it means to be a good manager. And so that's the end of the theory discussion. Now we can get into the practical rules. If you want. <laughs> yeah. Every week you're, you're in these sort of global organizations and, and, and you, I asked you earlier before we went live, what are the main questions these CEOs are asking you? And you said to me that it was balancing the current activities and output and generating revenue with still incubating new ideas that are going to shape the future of the organizations. Um, right. It's, but, but, exactly. I get called. It's almost always the same question because kind of what you're talking about two flavors. It's like, how do I bridge the divide between these two things? And we'll get to the. And it's usually in two flavors. Usually there's there's a company that started off small, a tech company, and now it went from 50 to 100 to a few thousand. And the CEO and the leadership team is like, well, we're getting worried. We know what usually happens. You get stale and some little guy comes and takes your lunch. How do we prevent that? How do we build the structure going forward? And then the other flavor of the call I get, and this is sort of media companies, tech companies, banking companies, insurance companies, auto companies. The other flavor I get is, well, we kind of crossed that line. Now we're starting to head down and there are all these little guys that are eating our lunch. So what can we do to turn it around? And so it's very similar principles in both. You know, the, the American, the U.S. military was a giant two million person organization and they turned it around. There are a lot of examples of giant organizations that turn it around. And so the answer is very simple. So here's the trick. It's the ice cube, the garden hoe, and the heart. And the ice cube is understanding that there and these are, you can think of these things as tools. The problem is that embracing wild new ideas and being really good at operational execution, delivering on time, on budget, on spec consistently to customers are two completely different things, two completely different things. And they can't be in the same phase at the same time. This the same way to liquid water can't be liquid and solid at the same time, but there is one exception to that rule right at 32 Fahrenheit, right at 32 Fahrenheit. If you bring a bath up to 32 Fahrenheit, you can get those two things coexisting. And so life at 32 Fahrenheit is what leaders and CIOs and C chief innovation officers, chief HR officers are trying to do. It's part of their, if, as you're getting larger, you want to get life at 32 Fahrenheit. You want to be able to do the solid, the operational, the execution, the discipline, and the embracing wild new ideas. And the reason it's so hard is that the folks, let's say the creators or the creatives, the artists working on the one, mm -hmm. on embracing wild new ideas, don't like and don't understand the soldiers <laughs> yeah. working on operations. They don't like each other. They don't understand each other. They yeah. speak different languages. They don't want to work together. Each yeah. side thinks the other side's an asshole. And that's <laughs> problem that I get called. That's why CEOs are coming. Hey, I read your thing and uh, I get it. I need my, I need to bridge the artists and the soldiers. And I'll, I'll tell mm -hmm. you kind of some of the things I tell them. I need to bri bridge them, but I want the rest of my leadership team to get that. Yeah. I can't do it by myself and uh -huh. I need the artists and soldiers to work together. So first, why is it that they don't like each other, don't understand each other? Then part of that is that they speak completely different language. They come from totally different worlds they value different things and they speak completely different languages for example the english word risk you would think that's one word four letters it should mean the same thing to everybody but it doesn't to a soldier risk is a really bad thing it's something you want to reduce if you go on a battlefield and you say oh it's a high risk situation that's bad if you tell your commander i've de-risked the situation that's fantastic you want to reduce it as much as possible now imagine going to an artist and say a creator and saying well you've really taken all the risk out of your work 
Yeah, massive that's horrible. Offensive. <laughs> yeah. That's a, an insult to a really yeah. good artist. You want to push the boundaries. And you know what? If you're running a team or a company, when you, you're exploring the boundaries, the peripheries, you want the people doing that. You want to be failing a lot. Why? If you're not, then you're not taking enough risk and your competitor is. They're going to mm-hmm. find that thing over there in the periphery out there in the, in the woods. That's the bullet that's going to come and shoot you in the head. So you want these guys to be taking the maximum risk. Imagine you're, you know, you go and it's just totally different goals. This one is going to be failing a lot. And the soldiers are going to be looking at, oh, this guy's an idiot. He's just failing all the time. And the soldiers and the artist is going to be listening to the soldiers whining and complaining about all their risk taking. And they're just going to get more and more pissed off. And that's g- normal. That conflict is good. If you don't have that conflict, you have a much bigger problem. One or the other is not doing their job. That conflict is exactly what you want. That tension is exactly what you want. So that's the ice cube. You need to understand that these two guys, the artist and the soldiers, speak different language. They don't like each other. They don't understand each other. I call it at the end of the day, I, we were talking about young kids. You have mm-hmm. a one-year-old. I have a almost five and an almost two. I call it, I call it the beautiful baby problem. When a creator, where artist comes up with a, an idea, it could be a project, it could be a design. In science, it's a biologist or a chemist working on a new molecules and tech companies, an engineer developed this incredibly elegant code. They're like, oh my God, I figured out this thing about the science, about the, 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 the coding. It's just the most beautiful thing. You guys just go off and run with it. Make it a product. Don't bother me anymore. It's a beautiful baby. Meanwhile, the soldier on the other side just sees vomit and poop, a shriveled up raisin covered in vomit. <laughs> <laughs> One side sees a beautiful baby. The other side sees a shriveled up raisin covered in vomit and poop. And you mm-hmm. know what? They're both right. Yeah. It's a beautiful baby with potential, but it has a lot of stuff to take the risk out to make it into a product. And that's the ice cube. And that takes you right to the garden hoe, which is a new way to think about, a better way to think about. It took me many years to learn this as a CEO, but it's a better way to think about your job as a manager and a leader. There's this whole myth that, uh, you know, a great leader needs to be a Moses on the top of the mountain who reaches down and raises his or her staff and anoints the chosen project, the holy loon shot. And that's wrong. By the garden hoe, I mean be a gardener, not a Moses. Your job is to bridge the divide. Your job is to manage the touch and balance between these artists and the soldiers. Why? The failure point in almost all innovation is not in the supply of new ideas. It's in the transfer to the field between these two groups that don't like each other, don't understand each other, and mostly think each other's an asshole. Your job is to manage the transfer both ways. Your job is to take that little baby stage idea out, not too early, not too late, bring it over to the soldiers who really are busy and they're selling mm-hmm. and they're talking to customers and they don't want to like, oh, what's this thing? I don't understand. Then, they're, not incent- they're not incentivized in most cases as well, are they really? And they're, paid, they're paid on commission. Yeah, exactly. Not on new ideas. <laughs> it's going to take a, a week to learn, really understand it. And that's a week out of their commission, right out of their pocket, right out of their mortgage check, right out of their kid's tuition. So like, screw that. If they want to take this thing and put it in front of their customers, guess what's going to happen? It's going to crash. It's not going to work well. And now their customers, who they go and have beers with and is the key is their relationships. Now their customers are going to be like, why did you show me that crappy thing? Because the customer's not going to understand. So the job of the leader is to see those problems, anticipate those problems, and create solutions for those problems, incentivize them correctly, manage the transfer. And it's not just one way, it's the other way too, because 
Why? What do I mean by that? Because when you take that first product out, it never works well the first time. And then the guy's like, well, let me just go back to selling typewriters or whatever my usual product is. What he doesn't do, because there's no reason for him, is to like really carefully spend time with the customer and say, help me understand what didn't work well. You know, what are you seeing in other competitors that makes you pick their product rather than not? Like, why should he do that? That's not his job. But you need that. Otherwise, the product, the idea was just going to die. You yeah. need to take that back into the lab and iterate. So the garden hoe is be a gardener, not a Moses. Your job is not to pick the technology and get into the weeds on either side. Your job is to manage the transfer, not the technology. So that's Ice Cube, the garden hoe. The last one, in some ways, sounds a little fuzzy and maybe more important. You might be able to relate to that. I certainly can relate. It took me, as a more analytical guy, many years to kind of <laughs> relate to it. But the last one is the heart. And by that, I mean, love your artists and soldiers equally. Yeah, so, that's a good one. Because normally, in my previous experience, the, the sales guys have gotten a lot more love than the, than the creatives. And, it can, and, it, and depending on who's leading the organization, it could be one or the other. But I've worked for organizations where it's very much the soldiers had sort of 99% of the love because that's where the revenue was coming in from. And then the others, the creatives kind of got a small bit of attention as well. And, it, you, can, and it, it was, you can see it was a real imbalance. Generally speaking, the reason this is so hard is that whoever's leading a particular group usually grows up in one or the other. Yes, so I mean, exactly. If you're a soldier, you grow up as a soldier, you relate mm -hmm. to soldiers. Yeah. If you're an artist, you grow up as an artist, you relate to artists. And I've seen it both. Sometimes I'm speaking to companies or I'm doing a fireside chat or whatever. It's some internal thing. The, the guy that I'm talking to who runs it says, well, how many people here do you think favor artists or favor? So I was running it once chief innovation officer at a very large uh, tech company uh, in the finance space. And he raises his hand and he, you know, he was in, in charge of innovation and new products. And it was his, uh, this giant innovation team. And he figured, well, everybody's, you know, going to be an artist. Mm -hmm. And he said, favor soldiers, 90% of the hands. Wow. Well, I'm not surprised though. It, it, it's very difficult. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, when sales guys are in charge, often it is the risk and the, the failure to understand the risk taking and the appreciation of why you need to try a lot of things and fail. It's the ice cube of not understanding that mm -hmm. these two groups and their incentive systems and their structures need to be exactly opposite. They're like 180 degrees apart. One wants to maximize risk at minimum quality. The other wants to do exactly the opposite, wants to minimize risk and maximize. They're 180. And so... The uh, one friend of mine puts out a major magazine and uh, very well known. And I was talking to her about this and she said, that's exactly the problem. But it was the other way around. The leadership team, she said, is always paying attention and talking about whoever is squeaking the loudest about some shiny, innovative new toy, you know, the latest podcast or the latest online thing or the latest. And she's like, 90% of us are focused on the really hard job of putting out a magazine every 30 days. So how do you think it makes us feel? So when you have that imbalance, what happens? What happens is when the CEO leaves the room or the leadership team leaves the room after you know, talking about innovation, rah, 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 these two groups that need to actually turn a concept into a product don't like each other, don't work together, and then everything just fails. doesn't matter how much the CEO you know, goes on about culture and innovation, if he hasn't set up or she set up the systems right, it's all going to fail. For example, it, no amount, of, take a block of ice, no amount of a leader yelling at the molecules in that block of ice, hey, everybody just loosen up, it's going <laughs> to 
But a small change in temperature can get the job done. A small change in temperature can melt steel. So that's why love your artists and soldiers equally. Don't favor one group or the other. Make sure that both are being appreciated for different things. One is for getting stuff on time, on budget, on spec. The other is for trying interesting new ideas, even if they fail. And in many ways, that's, you know, people ask me, like, who, you know, sometimes who's doing that well? You know, one of the things that Jeff Bezos at Amazon has talked about is making failure okay. For example, some people might remember the Fire Phone. That was a complete flop as a product. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> but the peop- some of the people who ended up working on it got promoted. And that sent a large message. And what happened is they used some of the learnings from that to develop Alexa. So that's what's happened when you understand balance. Now, Amazon has to get the soldiers right. It's on very low margin business. It has to get stuff on time, on budget. But that's how you balance your artists and their soldiers. One, one story was about Steve Jobs. You talked about soldiers on top. Well, Steve Jobs, when he was a young guy, first stint at Apple, he saw himself as this great artist, this great pirate, this great innovator. And when he started working on the Macintosh project, he said, oh, all you guys working on the franchise, the Apple III and so on, you guys are bozos, oh. regular soldiers. We're the pirates, the artists doing something crazy. And so it was so bad that the group on the other side started to you know, wear these plastic buttons with a picture of Bozo the Clown and a circle and a red sash. We're not bozos. And of course, they were bringing in 90, 95% of the revenue of the company. The hostility was so great that the street between their two buildings was called the DMZ, the demilitarized. <laughs> and people on both sides started leaving when the Mac launched it was kind of a flop the product didn't work very well it was overpriced and then the franchise started tanking too because all these good people had left and so Mm -hmm. apple nearly went bankrupt and that's an example of the wrong way leading like a moses loving your artists and you know crapping on your soldiers when he came back 12 years later well he promoted johnny ive and one of the ultimate artists and designers of all time but he also went and found this guy named tim cook who at his previous job at compaq was known as the attila the hunt of inventory And if there's a better name for a soldier inside a company, I don't know it. But (laughs) he led, not with this myth of I'm the ultimate Moses, but by bringing those two together and managing the touch and the balance between those two. And all of the Apple success afterwards was contingent on both. Like the iPad was a big success in large part because Tim Cook had managed to drive costs down so low that they could price it well. So it was both innovative and great design, but it was also priced well and delivered on time on budget. That's a key. And so when he was on his deathbed, one of his biographers was interviewing him and asked, you know, what do you consider your greatest innovation? And he said, you know, well, it wasn't any one of my products because the guy was thinking, well, it'd be the iPod or yeah, the iPhone. Exactly. Or, it was in the organization I designed. And that really comes back to the Ice Cube understanding that they're these two things, mm-hmm. the gardener leading like a gardener rather than a Moses, and the heart loving your artists and soldiers equally. And even though he saw himself as this ultimate pirate artist when he died who took over it wasn't the ultimate artist it wasn't and that was the big surprise to everyone wasn't it it was the ultimate soldier and he loves and he led by bringing them doing those three things and so that's how the ice cube the garden hoe and the heart love it a lot of large companies and gives you a different way of thinking about what it means to be a good manager and a good leader and what teams and companies need to do if they want to stay young they want to balance the two and bridge the divide yeah i love that because it really puts everything into perspective 
So everyone listening, you got <laughs> you can. I think there's a lot of thinking and uh, people are going to have to do after this episode. <laughs> uh, I'm already thinking about through my whole company myself right now and where we are. Um, there's a whole series of things you want to do about bridging the divide. In fact, when CEOs call me up, actually some of them have gotten that and they're like, okay, I need that help of bridging the artist and the soul. Yeah. How do we do How did you, how did you, how did you do that as a CEO of your biotech company? Like you mentioned, that's something that you, there's a whole list of, and this is why HR is so important because I, uh, we started the show with my buddy, uh, Art McMahon, who was my chief people officer when I was running my company. And it's HR is so important to this stuff for, for so many reasons. Firstly, they're neutral. Mm-hmm. They can. They're not in any one of those camps. They're at the center they're, of everything. Yeah, they're at the center. And so, CEO is of being a, being the chief executive officer, or even on the senior leadership team, can be very intimidating for more junior people. You know, you say one, everyone's watching your face, and what are you going to say? And trying to please you, but having a chief people officer, a chief talent officer, a head of HR that people can trust, can open up to, can be vulnerable to, and have confidence that they can share information and have confidence that it will stay private. And then the HR guy, the, t- the top HR person or woman comes to the CEO or comes to the rest of the executive team and says, here's how I see the issue. And that person is trusted to share information confidentially. That's important. And that person's incentives are aligned in bridging that divide. So one of the key things is having a really good person in that role who gets this idea because they can be an honest sounding board because they can get trust from both sides. Once you do that, some of the things to bridge the divide, there's a one series of things for what do you do? What are the kinds of loon shots you nurture? The two types of loon shots, the strategy and the product and how people have this blind spot. Blind spot. They just think innovation, loon shots, it's all about product, 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 product. And they miss the small shifts in strategy that don't sound like much or much less gra- glamorous, but actually can save your company. They cost less, uh, but they can save your company. So that's I'm going to set that aside. Those are the sort of the two types of loon shots. I'm going to get to more of the people issues. And the other thing to keep the balance that I, you know, I'm going to set aside and come back to if you want to talk about it, is the two sizes. And I think of that as like you got your core business is like a, 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 a your core business is like a cruise ship. You're cruising down. You own that lane of the ocean. And let's say you're Google. That's you know, mm-hmm. ten years ago, that's Google search text. You you killed it. You own that lane in the ocean. And then the one size is like small distance away. It's like a little speedboat that leaves the mothership and then comes back if it doesn't work. And let's say you're Google, that's, you were searching text. Let's search images. Okay, yeah, that's a good idea. People want to search images. So that's like a little speedboat. What about building a whole new email application? That's like a helicopter. You're exploring completely different countries. The this, this searching text, the searching images, you know, you're exploring adjacent lanes. It works. Yeah. But let's build an email application. Why email? Well, that's how it got started. It was a loon chart. It was a crazy idea. We're a search company. Why? Well, there are a lot of email things out there, but the, I really need to search them. And the current tools for searching them are pretty crappy. It's not what we do, but it's a loon shot. It's a helicopter. So there's the two sizes. There's the little speedboat that's exploring a size not very far, a distance not very far. And there's one that's exploring lanes that are quite a bit farther. So you need to understand balancing those types. You need to understand balancing the two types of the the Mm -hmm. product and the strategy, the two types of uh, sizes. But the specific issue of like, okay, let's say you got that, be a gardener, manage the transfer, not the technology, balance the two types and balance the two sizes. Let's say you've got all that sort of strategy stuff. What about the people stuff? How do you get these two groups 
to work together. In my in my industry, we figured out the hard in biotech and biomedical and drug discovery and drug development. You learn the hardware, like the biologists and chemists. You know, they love their biology and science yeah. working in the lab. And then there are, of course, the regulatory people, the manufacturing people, the quality check people, uh, the marketing people, two very different groups. So how do you bridge that divide? I talked to investment banks about this. They have like these great traders and great investors. And now it's a, the world is coming technology and AI yeah. higher. They pay a million dollars. They pay a million dollar a year salaries to hire these incredible technologists. So they're really great on both but they can't bridge the divide. Actually, I've had a, a lot of folks who are senior in the military reach out, uh, US Army, US Navy, US Air Force, actually some national security agencies, same problem. They've got not like the, 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 the senior uh, leadership in the Navy that I'm talking to about how to reinvent the Navy for the 21st century. They've got people who manage nuclear submarines. Your job is to reduce risk. You don't want a lot of risk on a nuclear submarine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know. On the other hand, they've started to partner with these incredibly innovative scientists for new technologies. Yet, in the middle, what do they have? They have like some high school kid with a clipboard going between the two. Mm. Because they neglect that key role, that link in the chain. And it sounds funny because you're like, oh, yeah, we train nuclear engineers. You can get an undergraduate, a master's, a PhD, measure the operations. And then on the other side, you have these great scientists or technologists and you can measure. But where's that career ladder for someone who is bilingual, who can speak? It was incredibly good at explaining to scientists what it is that the soldier needs, what that the marketing guy needs, and translating it into their language that's not threatening. This is going to sound a little soft and touchy-feely, but it really matters, as anyone who's in an operating role knows. The scientists, the ones who are really creating something new or whether it's a new business model or a new technology, they have these beautiful babies. So if you just come and tell them their baby is ugly and has these 17 flaws, they're just going to leave. They're going to be pissed off. So it's a very tricky art form to take these things back here and then to take it over to, as you talked about, these soldiers, these artists, they don't know what the hell these scientists are talking about or these creatives. Are translating it into a language they can understand and relate to. So this middle project champion or who, whatever you want to call it inside your company is actually an incredibly important role and something that most people miss. And if, as you're growing larger, you have to understand that role sounds weird to a scientist. Like, what do I need a translator? I'm a human. Just talk to me. Uh. Yeah. And then the soldier is like, are you I kidding? Get it, I get it. I get it. Yeah. Exactly. Where's the PL? Where's yeah. this guy? I can see a scientist making a widget. Okay, mm -hmm. fine. I see why you're paying him. Obviously, I am, you know, I'm a soldier, I'm a marketer, I've got customers, I bring in revenue. So, of course, I'm really valuable. What's this guy like in the middle? Like that, where's his PL? Like, I don't even get that. But the companies who are really good, like Google actually is extremely good at this. And I, you know, you talk to some of their people, it's a whole career ladder in just doing this. And the psychology of getting the scientists to understand what the marketing and the soldier people want and vice versa and taking stuff back and forth and helping pretty big egos on both sides. If you're a marketing guy with big revenue coming in, you're pretty sure of yourself. You don't really want someone telling you what to do. And if you're a scientist on some new, or an engineer or a designer coming up with a new idea and you've been doing it for a while, you're pretty good. You're also pretty big ego sometimes. Bridging those egos is a very tricky skill set. Yeah. So one thing you want to do is the leadership team has to elevate 
that importance of that role. Because these two guys, the artists and the soldiers or gals, whatever they're, they're not going to understand why you need that. So it's the leadership team as you get bigger. You know, if you're a five-person company, it's a very different story. But once you're 500 and you want to stay young, the CEO isn't going to be able to go back and forth. Let me tell you what this guy is doing. Let me tell you what that person's doing. Let me explain it back and forth. And back. CEO's just not going to have time once you get bigger and bigger and bigger. So one of the things is you appoint these bilingual specialists. That's one of the things that's key. And then there's kind of a whole list of kind of other, even some smaller things, some micro things you can do, some macro things you can do, but we can get into that. I don't know how much yeah. time you have. <laughs> well, whilst you're saying that, I was thinking in HR, that's where the HR business partner comes into play a lot of the times. It's that middle middle ground between translating HR to the rest of the organization and, and communicating. It's almost like a business partner role in a sense. What do they call if it at Google? If exactly if if that's all the HR business partner does, it's not really that's all an enormous do, but... win for the company. Mm. If that if they can if an, a good HR business officer can help bridge that divide, a lot of stuff will just take care of itself. And there's yeah. so many little tricks for how you do. I, I mean, I'll just give you an example. One of the things that I did, but we created a gratitude log on our, we gave it a funny name, like shooting stars, because I have some astronomy background. On the company's internet homepage, inside, not outside, anybody inside the company can send a shooting star of recognition to anyone else, 280 characters or whatever it was. I think we, we it's been a while, I can't even remember, we tied something at the end of the month, you know, a little sure. prize recognition. But it's just for fun. And the leaders of those groups would encourage their team members don't just send it to the person sitting on your left that you see every day. Send it to the, if you're working on a new design, send it to the person in accounting. What about them? They're, mm-hmm. they're working pretty hard. If you're a public company like we were to close the books 15 days after month end. Of course, and get that yeah. SEC. And that's a really hard job. You know, they're working nights and weekends to get that done inside a public company. And you see them there early in the morning later. Why don't you send? What that does is it starts to bridge the divide between these two kind of polarities. That's just a little example, but there are many, many of these little things that an HR, a really good HR person can start to do. You know, little talks, designers or scientists working on a new idea or a new project just for fun. Create a talk, not for his people to show off all his technology and fancy jargon, but in plain English. Mm-hmm. Bring in all the marketing people, just, you know, 30 minute talk once a week or whatever, optional. All of a sudden, you create buy-in. You create much better communication. That's another thing the HR business partner can do. What about someone who wants to opt in? Let's say a marketing. Imagine the power of this. And actually, Google does it, and a few other companies do something like this. Someone whose job is, you know, five days a week, uh, fifty weeks a year, sales, for example. And he says, you know, I I have all these ideas. I have all this stuff. And I heard this talk from this person working on this new business model or this new thing. I kind of like to be involved. If you create a, what an H, a really good HR person, leadership team can do is create a structure that allows that s- any salesperson to opt in. They hear a good talk. They want to work on that project for a little bit. Any good salesperson can opt in and devote X percent of his time. It's not 50%. It's not 30%. Yeah. It's 10% or 20%. And it's going to be okay. There's a system in place. That's why you need HR and a leadership team to go get on board and create the structure where it is okay for the salesperson to take 
for a few month period to work on a crazy new project, partner with some guy on the other side of the fence. And now what happens? That wall becomes porous. All of a sudden you create a different model inside your company. It's not us versus them. Yeah. There's no wall. If I wanted to, even what happens like uh, at a couple of companies, I know, for example, I think Google, I can talk about it. They have this kind of rule. And you know what? Very few people opt in. It doesn't happen that everybody on mass, every salesperson on mass says, great, every Monday I'm yeah, working on this. Yeah, it's a, you should be concerned about that happening. <laughs> but it doesn't. The point yeah. is that once you make it under their control, sometimes maybe there'll be a few people, but it's not actually, it's not everybody and it's not even the majority. But what it does is it eliminates that tension or it reduces, you'll never eliminate the tension. What I mean, it reduces it. It makes it more cohesive. It makes that well porous. Because what happens is that soldier guy, that marketing guy can start to think, well, it's not that I couldn't go over there if I didn't, if I wanted to, I could, I just don't really feel like it. And then it, that's a very different feeling than I've been told to stay over in my sandbox and not go into that sandbox. Yeah. Very different mindset. That's just you know another example of a little thing you can do to bridge the divide. And then the more complicated things are about incentives. Yeah. That requires an extremely good chief people officer to motivate, yeah. design the incentives so that, and I, by incentives, I don't just mean financial, but I mean also the non-financial, both financial and non-financial incentives, very tricky. And there's no operating person or salesperson or technology head, even the CEO doesn't have the bandwidth to sit down and think very carefully about like all the ways that can go wrong because if you play with incentives you're playing with fire so you want to be very careful that's another thing really good hr person can do so sometimes when i give these talks i talk about a different title or a different word and i say think about chief incentives officer every company or not every almost every company spends a ton of money on hiring a chief technology officer a chief product well which would you rather have a company whose workforce has the best and latest gadgets in the industry or the most motivated workforce in your industry? Which would you rather have? Everyone has got, you know, the best iPhone or the best tool or their incentives are the most aligned of any of your competitors. Your incentives of your team are so much better aligned than your competitors. Who do you think mm-hmm. is going to win? Exactly. The one with and, the most yeah. motivated workforce <laughs> yeah. or the one whose workforce has the best gadgets. Yeah. So yeah. why do we have chief technology officers, but we don't have chief incentive officers? I would argue a chief incentive officer is more important than a chief technology officer <laughs> because having the most motivated, most aligned workforce in the industry is incredibly critical. And what happens at so many, even the best large companies, you know, the, the gold-plated names and in investment banking or tech companies, the leadership retreats that I go to and I talk with them, they're like, yeah, we've got the you know top people in the world and in you know in our operations and and we've hired these incredible technologists and their their incentive systems are from the 19th century. Well, I'm, I'm conscious of the time, Safi. So um, before we wrap up, you know, if there's sort of one parting piece of guidance you could give to everyone, uh, what would that be? Because obviously, I think you've provided an incredible overview for everyone. Definitely given some practical steps people can take right now, which is great. And uh, these aren't things at which cost a huge amount of money either. These are some small changes that can have a huge impact. But you know, if there's... Yeah, when you, I, I, some of the, the ice cube, the garden, and the heart, be a Moses, lead like yeah. a gardener, not like a 
closes and love your artists and soldiers equally. But I'll, I'll tell you one thing that uh, has always, it was very helpful for me. And that was one a, a piece of advice that I got. I'll, I'll tell you a couple of, that I got very early, which was, and it's related to that last one is some people you get really caught up in the analytics and the, and the, the, uh, the, the numbers and the technology. What was very useful was one guy pulled me over one time and said, Safi, you want to think about leading from the heart, not just from the head. And that goes to listening to what people are really feeling emotionally. And it sounds very touchy feely, but that's one thing that a really good leader can help his other leaders understand. When are they too much in the head and not enough in the heart? And I was for my first five or more years as a CEO, I was way too much in the head and it took me mm -hmm. a long time understand and part of that was the second piece of advice is when people are talking to you listen to the music behind the words that took me a long time to understand as well when people are saying you know my stock is this or my thing is that or i'm not working out what are they re what's the real source of frustration and you have to tease that out and teasing that out is very tricky and it becomes a skill so if i had to leave folks with two two ideas that have helped me as a leader in addition to the stuff i've kind of the more macro stuff i've mentioned it's lead from the heart, not just the head. Mm -hmm. Listen to the music behind the words. Amazing. And, and for everyone listening, um, Safi, what's the best way for them to, one, if they have any questions and want to get in contact with you, where's the best, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? And also, if they want to grab a copy of the book, which I highly recommend. There's so many other, um, you know, everything we've been talking about, you know, you go so much deeper within the book. And there's also loads of other great stories and examples of, of this throughout history, which just fascinate me and I'm sure fascinate everyone else. So where's the best place for everyone to to get in contact with you and grab a copy of the book as well okay simple as that <laughs> and uh and email me there there's if you you know there's a speaking thing there and there's mm -hmm. uh that's how you can reach me or on twitter my handle is safi bacall and linkedin of course yeah, of is course. actually where i communicate the most and there are a bunch of articles that go into these ideas a little bit more and then i tend to respond to all the comments on the articles so any actually in linkedin anybody can reach me there fantastic well look thanks again for coming on the show i'm really excited to have you on the show excited for everyone to actually grab a copy of your book uh as well because i know the impact it's made on me personally even as a small startup and ceo and founder as well so i uh, really appreciate you taking the time out to join us uh, on the show it means a lot uh, apart from that um in, enjoy the rest of your day and i look forward to seeing you live in the next few days again see you later guys thanks a lot safi appreciate you joining us